This is the Thrift and Chick Vintage Podcast. Hey, Brenda. Hi. How you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Yeah. Why the music is still playing. <laughs> That's okay. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're going to jump right in. Yeah. So we're so excited to have you on as a guest today and looking forward to many more conversations. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. Hey, always. I love talking with you. Yes. We, we seem to stay on the phone for hours on the end. So forgive us now if this, this podcast lasts a little long. But it's going to be exciting today. Um, as I mentioned before, this is Brenda, and she is of Vintage Fabulosity. Brenda, you want to tell our listeners how long have you been a thrifter? Uh, a really long time. <laughs> a very about long time. 50, about 54 years. Wow. 54 years in this industry. 54 years and seriously for the last 40 years or so. Okay. Okay. So when did you realize that there was an opportunity for money? I mean, in, in, for, in order for you to make money off of it, like when did you realize like, Oh, I can actually monetize this. Well, um, I've worn vintage clothing all my life. Okay. But- in the 90s and it was one of the shops that I went to you know she said you know Brenda you have exquisite taste and you have such style you need to go to New York and I'm saying oh I just wear it she says no you shop with me I know your inventory you need to go to New York so um, maybe in 92, I went to visit the Manhattan Bennett show and I was shocked that uh, my stuff was really compatible to every other vendor that was selling there. So I started maybe in 93 mm. going to New York doing the Manhattan Bennett show and in the process I've done shows internationally in Toronto, Chicago. Uh, I'm here located in uh, Michigan now, and at one time I was a exclusive vendor for uh, the Birmingham community team. Wow. So it's, uh, I, it was when I did that first show, and uh it just shot off and doing the show helped me evolve because my customers were educated consumers. So they mm-hmm. really educated me on uh, what was fabulous and what was fabulous. So, wow. yeah. So you got a different perspective, you know, during the years and my aesthetic is classically designed vintage something that when you wear it people are just going to say oh it's beautiful not necessarily say it's vintage or costume and okay uh, so it is uh my logo is and i really do have uh a hundred year over a hundred year collection 
wow. representation from every decade from the 1890s. So wow. it's been a while. <laughs> That's exciting. So like how large would you say your collection is? And, you know, what's the estimated value? If you could put a price on it, because I know vintage is kind of hard to price. It's you know. kind of hard to price. But mm-hmm. if I sold a lot of my stuff at just fair market value, compatible to what other dealers are selling them for, um, I, I'll say a half a million dollars or more. And as far as pieces, we've talked about it before. They did a, a book on my collection of uh, vintage purses, which are whimsical. And at the time they uh, wrote the book on my collection of vintage purses, I had an excess mm-hmm. of 5,000 vintage purses. And that was in 1999. And what's the name of the book for our listeners who may oh, want to copy okay, that? It's uh, Popular Purses. It's in the bag. And uh, the author is Dino Bryant and Leslie Pina. And it's, you can get it on Amazon. I'm After all these years, it's still in circulation. And okay. it's five stars. So, yeah. Okay. That's amazing. So I'm going to put the name of the book in the show notes at the end for those of you who want to check the book out. And you can meet with Brenda that way. That's another way you can meet with her. Also, um, during the process of them doing that book, I had a nice collection of Whiting and Davis purses. Wow. Uh, They're not in popular purses. It's in the bag. But uh, they're in the Whiting and Davis book by the same author. Okay. So. And for those people who don't know about Whiting and Davis, because, you know, I have to say that sometimes when I look on Etsy and I see Whiting and Davis, I see it priced really low. And I'm like, how do you price a Whiting and Davis bag for so low? Um. I think as well as an educated consumer, you need a, you know, dealers that really know their inventory. So mm. I think that's why the prices vary. And of course, uh, according to condition and, and different things, but if you love it, buy it. It's a well-made mm. okay. purse. Yeah. Right, because when you look inside, the lining is usually like a satin, silk satin lining, and it's, the beading is exquisite. Uh, just the design. Back in the day, they designed for women. Mm. Not for what they thought women liked, but clothes that really fit women, accessories that went with the clothes. It was a, a real thought-out process, and it was, to me, it was done um, for style, but it wasn't about, it was about making money, but not trends and things were made to last. And it's a mm. testament. I mean, you could go out and spend a few hundred dollars on a purse and in a couple of years, it's gone. A vintage purse, mm. uh, my, one of my favorite pieces is one of my earliest pieces. 
And it's a work of art. It's not just a purse. It's an opera bag from the 1890s. Mm, oh, opera bag. So that would date it back to at least the 20s? No, no, or before? 1890s. 18, wow, 1890. It's okay. Opera glass. It's a, a small clutch, but it has all these compartments in it. It has opera glasses. It has a folding fan. Oh, a powder puff, and it has a dance card, and uh, there was a name on the dance card. The purse was embossed, and it was from a socialite in Camden, New Jersey. Here, uh, wait a minute, hold up, because a dance card, when I was selling insurance, there was a dance card, like when we would go to networking mm -hmm. events we would have to use a dance card, like, you know, just to introduce ourselves or to partner or meet the next person across the room for us. We use the dance card. That's fascinating that they had dance cards back in 1890. Like, right. And it I just thought it was a relatively new thing. Like, oh, this is pretty cool. I, and I haven't seen it since then, but you know, wow. When you went to a dance, you, you know, it's same concept. You introduced yourself open you lined up your dancers for the night now the fan in the purse was broken and I thought it was really mm. interesting they had a card that's in the purse from Tiffany and company that uh, repairs fans get out of here so that was in the bag that was as in well the bag as well in the so when they donated that bag they say somebody is going to find this bag I know the fan is broken, so I'm going to go ahead and throw this card in. Well, no, I think the fan has been there since it was used, of in use, because, I mean, it was early Tiffany's. There was no, you know, zip code, you know, there was just, just mm -hmm. it was an early, I, I guess somebody gave her the card to get the fan fixed, and I think. Oh, wow. You need to post a picture of that. We need to see that. Everybody needs to see that. I will take a picture of the, the bag and then fan everything out around the bag, saying and, what and was in the bag. It's sort of faded over the years, but it's a blue, beautiful blue alligator. Oh, jeez. Wow. The, the bag itself is a blue the bag alligator? The is blue alligator. Okay, okay. Wow, I can't even imagine. I'm I'm trying to imagine this blue alligator bag, and I can't. It's, it's, it's no, like it's a regular happening. clutch, but it was like a. Is it a box a clutch folding, or folding? Because the the purse folds in half. It has all these different compartments, and I imagine you know women weren't carrying what they anything like they carry now. A few coins, you know, something like that. But it's just a really, really, really beautiful bag. Wow, but yeah, that's definitely something that you should post on your social media and sh and share that with the world. Like, I'm sure everybody would love to see I, that. That's a great piece of history to have. I think that's. The one thing that I enjoy about finding history, I mean, finding vintage clothes is just imagining the history behind it or the person who wore it. You know, and that's interesting because uh, when I was in school, history was one of my favorite subjects. And mm. 
clothing evolves around the social history at any given point. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you can look at a piece of clothing and sort of determine, you know, if it was someone wealthy or someone poor or, you know, what was going on at any given time, like Chanel made history. She went from the long, cumbersome, big skirts, you know, during mm-hmm. World Wars and made clothes that women could work in and, and be comfortable in since that's what was going on at the time. Men were at war, women were on the home front carrying on. So um, I think about the Harlem Renaissance movement. Mm. You know, um, and black women, you know, they were making their own couture clothing at homes and maybe in in little shops and stuff. But if you look back in history, they set the trend for what we know as style. Mm. So Mm -hmm. there's always something going on in history with clothing. You know, Chaparelli, there's a dress of hers in the museum in Toronto. Mm -hmm. She made it after the war from muslin. She didn't have any money. She got her friend to paint a design on it. Her friend, Mm -hmm. Picasso. You know, um, yes, it's always something going on in fashion. Now, Chaparelli, she was the one, was she known for her pleated dresses as well? She was known for everything that you can consider beautiful. She was a designer. Mm -hmm. And uh, her clothes were like made to fit the form of a woman and and still be fun. Mm -hmm. And they were loose fitting too. That's important to note. They wasn't tight. Or fitted stuff too, but Again, back in the day, they designed for a woman's body, not for trends or, you know, and it was just a beautiful thing. You know, I wanted to think vintage clothing, our works of art, not only the luxury designer pieces, but some of the pieces that you could find off the rack back in the day or... Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like I said, nondescript without with a label, label, like yeah, when you... the fabric, the, the mm-hmm. text, textiles are gorgeous. 50, 60, 70 years later, because they were natural, I think that's you know, because they were natural, made of natural fibers, so the textiles were, wasn't nylon or polyester or viscose we're seeing a lot of today. It was, you know, it was cotton or it was a cotton toil or um silks was made out of real okay. fabric or real yeah, textiles. real designs and made to last and made to last made to last built to last and that's why vintage stands the test of time i mean if we look at the clothes today you know you wear a shirt and then you know after a couple washes it's like okay it's time to get rid of this shirt it's not even worth donating. Like, you know, it's not the, it, it just doesn't hold. It, it, it's just, it's just 
fabric that's there, you know. But it doesn't have any substance or a story or feeling behind right. it. Well, I can remember as a teenager, and and then mm. plus, I really think that socially, clothing has played uh, a lot in the way that we think socially as a teenager when you went to the movie and they actually had soda shops mm. put on your little jet heel you know you put back in, you, know, uh, you got a little dressed up when you went to the movies or when you went to a party now having said mm-hmm. all of that People weren't thinking about fighting because they were trying to be too cute and too sophisticated, you know. Mm-hmm. And prim for any kind mm-hmm. of ugliness whatsoever. And then along came the 80s and the nondescript clothes, uh, the, you know the saggy pants, the athletic wear, and everybody was just a tomboy. Mm, Okay. You know what? It's so funny. Uh, I just went out and we went to, and the place was called the Brooklyn Pharmacy. And, but what they, what they are, it it used to be an apothecary Mm. place back in the day so it's a it's an old very old part of brooklyn and it's now it's an ice cream and a soda shop so it has the old table you know like the the counters with the stools and we went and had ice cream and um with the little girl and you know and, and everything in the shop was still everything that was from the apothecary so it was um an apothecary and they sold you know like pharmacies it was like a pharmacy so they still had all the little tinctures and the containers that they will put your, your, your medicine in. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, because everything is pretty much the same except for the, the added fixtures for the ice cream shop. And yeah, that was pretty cool. They even have the little, you remember the ice cream hats back in the day that they would wear, the hats? Mm-hmm. thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I do think uh, clothing, if, if you think about it, anything that's going on in society the way we style or buy clothing reflects that reflects reflects the time that we're in the current time and what's Correct, going on yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so how do you feel about today's style and today's fashion like do you think that people today have style as they had back you know back in the 50s or the 60s or because or, I think I, for me I love the 40s and I like, love the 50s style 60s I think it you know it became a little younger and I still like it but some of those pieces to me don't stand up to like that classic suit or those jackets that the women wear like the, the blazers or just the coats because outerwear is my favorite vintage pieces of all time like I love a good vintage coat like from, from like the 40s, a wool button-down coat, nice fitted at the top, nice flare at the bottom, the fur collar. 
So do you think today's style ha- do you think their style today as there no, was back then? Not at all. I think today's clothes there are a lot of good designers out there, but today's clothes uh are just costumes. It's not really about style, it's more about a costume. Mm-hmm. Um I like the thirties and I like the sixties. 70s, mm-hmm. I guess, maybe because that was my time. And I like the 50s okay. because uh, I come from a big family and a lot of my sisters were older and I had one sister that was just, um, you know, people who used to talk about her because she was really buying Chanel and Dior back in the 50s as she was telling me we had a conversation and uh, we really came from humble beginnings and I'm really proud Mm. of my family because it didn't stop anybody from succeeding and one of the first things she she purchased was a pair of Ferragamo shoes and a mm. pair of linen Ferragamo shorts, and this was in the 40s. Okay. Over the wow. years, and it was really before I got into vintage, um, she really, just being her, if it was an art collection, she'd be uh, more than a millionaire. Her art would be selling for her dresses would be selling for tens of thousands of dollars because she was buying clothes at a a time. And that's what I like about the past. They didn't saturate the market. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And women, you know, either you could afford it or you didn't. You didn't sell your soul for a purse or a dress. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you could get beautiful stuff off the rack so um mm, i think what was important about what you just said was that they didn't saturate the market so there was probably a size run of it but then once it ran out it was like mm, that's pretty much yeah. it it's opposed to here it's like they're producing mass producing all these clothes and then it, they can't sell it to enough people and then that's how it ended up on sale, getting marked down. Or remember with the Burberry case, Burberry a couple of years ago, they had to burn all those clothes, all those clothes. Like, it, it, you know, what yeah, a waste. Yeah, it is a waste. I mean, how many people, it's only about two or 3% of women in the world that can really afford to change their wardrobe mm. every season. And most of those women they don't want to see themselves on the runway. I think that's one reason why vintage clothing is so much in demand by a lot of celebrities is because you're not going to see yourself again. For the most part, Mm. in a dress, the dress is going to be exquisite and it's not going to cost you $100,000. Mm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think vintage clothing is actually 
much better than anything that they're putting out now because of the textiles and the variety and the simplicity of it. You can really wear them if you can fit them. That's the only drawback. You have to be able to fit them. To fit them, yeah. Yeah, because um, do you now in your collection, since you have such a vast collection, do you have a, a collection or a section where you have plus size or like larger sizes? Because I for me, it's, it's very hard to I've find. I've always collected clothes for the fuller figures coming up. I don't know what society thinks about it now, but I admired my mother's friends who were fuller figured. I don't know what's happening. They they were beautiful just the same as if, you know, they were a size four. But women, I guess because of the lifestyle, they were cooking their own food, they were walking, they were doing mm-hmm. all the healthy things that they talk about today that people just don't do, you know. So mm-hmm. they really weren't it was really hard, I mean, to find somebody that was even like a size 14 or 18 dress. If you cross it today, mm-hmm. it's still only going to fit maybe a size 12 or a size 14 person today. And then they have to be in the right proportions. But mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. that's full figured, I try to, to get it. And I find that I um, I find more coats. Uh, I do find okay, okay. more fuller figure women, uh, especially the coats from the 50s. They seem to be fuller. So, and a lot of dresses from the 60s when they came out with the shift with a fitting mm-hmm, dress, mm-hmm. they seem to fit, but Overall, it's I'm not biased because I believe I don't care what size you are, you are beautiful and can be beautiful, and there's no excuse for a woman, whether she's small or full figured, just not to be fabulous today, even in a simple way. Even in a simple simple way. way, you could put on a pair of jeans and a a nice sequin t-shirt or vintage shirt I've got uh, today I wore um, a suede it's just a suede shirt from the 60s that with a and uh, if you're feeling it wear it I don't care what size you are if you feel it and you feel like hey I'm hot then you are hot Go then go for it. Go for it. As long as well, it fits. I was gonna say as long as. <laughs> as long as it fits and it make you feel amazing and fabulous, then go for it. So, um, let me ask: Where do you source most of your vintage? I was reading an article about the different types of pickers. So, one being the cherry picker. And then there's also the book buyer, someone who buys in book or people who buys by the container. Oh, no, I would never because uh, whatever I buy, I want to touch it. I want to feel it. And 
you know, I go to thrift mm-hmm. shops, I go to uh, church bazaars, I go to other mm-hmm. vintage stores. You know, not everybody knows their inventory. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can find beautiful things, you know, in other people's shop. Everybody that's doing vintage has some kind of taste, you know. And I also, mm-hmm. for the last maybe 20 years, I I shop in, you know, out of uh, the bin, the garbage bin. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. You know, it's funny, a couple a couple years, a couple summers ago, I had my nieces here. And, you know, we were doing a lot of walking around, take my, my younger one to the park. She loved to go to the park. And we walked past this church, and they had all these clothes just out on the table. And they like, oh, you can just grab it. Just grab whatever you want. <laughs> I found Kate Spade shoes. <laughs> oh, I found, like, two pair of Kate Spade shoes, a pair of Tory Burch sandals, like, and it was just all for free. I'm like, go figure. Well, I, okay, thanks. I live in an apartment building and they have estate sales, you know, and oh, mm. people make their transition. Their families don't want to be bothered. So you go into those apartments when they're selling everything out. Ooh, you lucky. No, what is in house? Uh, <laughs> me and the lady had been friends during her lifetime and when she passed her lawyer was the executor of her estate mm-hmm. the woman was a hostess at a you know really expensive restaurant back in the 40s and the 50s when wow. hostesses were required to wear an evening gown Mm. I had seen her collect, you know, collection of evening gowns. And, uh, mm-hmm. So I asked her lawyer, you know, and oh, he didn't have time for it. So when it came time to sell the apartment, he just threw everything in the garbage and I just stopped <laughs> <laughs> and got everything out the garbage. And I mean, like, oh, okay, I know that's right. So, uh, unbelievable! Just about to just throw it away, just dump it. I don't have time for it. I just, I, I just, I want the big money in his head. I want yeah, the big well, money. Yeah, he just wanted to get rid of stuff. He got rid of everything, you know, all of her jewelry and stuff. Her, her daughter inherited, but uh, she didn't want to be bothered. So, you know, I get a lot of stuff, uh, beautiful stuff at a state sale. I can remember one piece that I got. I was in Toronto doing a show, mm-hmm. and uh, this gentleman came in, and he had tons of stuff, and he just dumped everything out on the floor, including a numbered Yves Saint Laurent dress. From a 60s. numbered. It's a registered dress. And wow. Uh, that's when you know you have a real vintage piece for, for the listeners out there that don't understand what a numbered Yves Saint Laurent piece means. Like, that's a number it was ma- that means it has, you know. Well. And mm. uh, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was afraid to ask him how much it cost. 
And when he told me $25, that, mm, that term mm, with mm. the American Exchange, I paid $12.50 for it. Mm-hmm. Now, what show did they have in Toronto? Is it like the Manhattan Vintage Show? Well, it's at the time, this was uh, back in the 90s. And um, mm. it's called the, oh my God, you caught me off guard with this. But it's a, a show they have for vintage and new designers. And they still have that show to, uh, until today. I've been excited to go. Okay. But I don't really like to travel and do shows anymore. I'm going to think about it because it, it's at the Exhibition Center. Vintage, I think it's Vintage Exhibition. It's at the Exhibition Center in downtown Toronto. And uh, the clothing show. And they have new designers and vintage designers. But at the time, their appreciation for vintage, well, you know, if I got a a number, it wasn't really that much. Mm -hmm. So... uh, But I can imagine in Toronto, they probably have a lot of people um, from the UK over there as well. Well, the vintage market has really really change uh i think people all over the world well i know people all over the world when i did the manhattan show i had repeat customers um from places like taiwan you know the far east i have an etsy shop and i find that most of my uh a lot of my purchases are done from people out of the country, people from Europe, I guess with the war and like I said, history reflects, you know, they had access to a lot of stuff, but they lost a lot of stuff. They were devastated all over mm-hmm. Europe and stuff, you know, and then certain cultures didn't open up to Western ideas until maybe in the last 50, 60 years. So, um, Vintage clothing. I, I in Toronto, in Toronto is just to me now. It's just as international as New York. So mm-hmm. now, if you go, I, I, it's probably it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, because I know Toronto now has a Toronto Fashion Week. Yeah, so Toronto is definitely climbing the ranks as far as fashion goes in general. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a really big deal. I ran across a customer who became a friend, and she's Indian, and she has um, she's an Indian designer, and she designs jewelry for Indian weddings, the headpieces and the hand pieces, and he talks mm-hmm. frequently and she's just so excited because it it is it's wide open and international now so and you have people coming from all over the world i can remember as a kid i was raised in buffalo new york which is only 90 miles from toronto mm, but to okay, toronto yeah, yeah. when you didn't have money to you know really take a a vacation and say to new york city or to, to la or something because so okay, okay. And with the exchange, 
um, you could stay in Toronto really inexpensive and it was more provincial at the time. It wasn't, I can remember Young Street was only maybe a few blocks and it wasn't that much going on, but uh, now mm. it's, uh, it's crazy up there. Okay, okay. Now, let me ask you this. Now, have you ever wanted to open up your own store? You never thought about having your own store, or was it because you were working? Well, when I first started, even when I first started going to New York, I was working. I was a a chemical analyst for a Fortune 500 company. Wow, that's that's kind of like a huge contrast in <laughs> industries from, from yeah, chemical... Chemical to vintage yeah, clothing. The things I used to do because I always look for the fabulous pieces and and just looking help relieve the stress of the day. Mm, Acid okay. and bleach covered steel toe shoes and jeans and sweatshirts and go into a vintage clothing store and find something fabulous and yeah but uh i do how did you end up in detroit my daughter okay okay sort of and she started having kids sort of late and she ma i just need you here around my kids i got to have you around the kids and i jokingly said to her uh find me a job and I'll <laughs> and she found you a job and I up here and now Ooh. she's in Arizona you know but uh, I, I'm gonna enjoy the ride in Detroit until I go out west which I'm planning to do in the future but no getting back I do have a oh. uh, a small shop. I'm in an antique mall. And uh, mm-hmm. I've been there five or six years and I've got followers and, you know, I've um, when I stopped doing the shows and, and last year I decided to go online. I'm on Etsy. And, uh, okay. okay. And that's under Vintage Fabulosity? Vintage Fabulosity, one word. And uh, you type, I'm on Etsy, you can, you can find me. And um, right now, I'm just happy. I'm, I want to take it to another level. After talking to you, you know, I would like to see if I could find um, some younger people to maybe help influence because I think we can make yeah. that happen, Brenda. I think, you know, if I put out an ad or something, interview some people, like I'm willing to do some interviewing, you know, then I'll weed them out, send them over to you. <laughs> you know, we could tag team that because we have to get yeah. you a team. But let's go back and let's tell the, the listeners where in Eastern Market, because it's downtown it's, uh, Detroit. Eastern Market and the name of the place. Eastern Market. That's the new shop that we're in. Uh, We've only been open less than a month. We relocated from uh, Eastern Market Antiques. And we're at 1515 Division Street. 
in the Eastern Market in uh, downtown Detroit. It's a historical area. The antique market. Do you have a booth number? Is there a booth number? Or, okay. Vintage Fabulosity just, they, uh, I'm one of the few uh, vintage dealers. There are a couple of us. But uh, I'm established in that store, and I'm, you know, doing okay. But um, one of the things that I like to do, getting back to something you asked me earlier, uh, Mm -hmm. in liquidating, I would like to liquidate most of my collection. And just in the process of liquidating it, because my collection is so expansive and it expands mm-hmm. over a hundred years, just having an intern help me catalog all this stuff is going to be an mm-hmm. education that they can't get because uh, most of what I learned, I've learned over the years from my customers um, from present fashion, from the fashion of history, and watching trends. I mean, really focusing on stuff. When you do a show, you don't just arbitrarily take pieces. You got to mm. plan, you know. You got to know what the trends are, the colors are, what air, because everything is repeated. That's why designers from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s even the 50s those people were because they were coming up with all kind of new ideas mm-hmm. that's when the ideas were new when they, they were, were fresh things fresh. that they were made with the woman's mm-hmm. body in mind most of the a lot of the movie stars they looked fabulous in their clothes because their clothes were made for their body type. You know, it mm. wasn't just, okay, um, Tom Ford made a piece, so, you know, we're going to wear it. And by the way, Tom Ford is a fabulous designer. Mm-hmm, were, mm-hmm. I've worked a couple of his yeah. shows. But and they, yeah, some of his, his pieces are. More for a woman, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. 30s was just almost the clothes were almost like fantasies. They were changing clothes to for lunch and dinner and dancing, and it was just a beautiful thing. Now it's just they're just clothes. It's just clothes you wear all day, just, morning, noon, afternoon. Like they're like back. What you're saying is that back then they had a there was a day dress. There was a house dress, right? right? The, there was a cocktail right. dress. It, and you wore those dresses on those occasions. You didn't wear them. You didn't wear the cocktail dress. You know, seventy years for a house dress. And I think I'm into my third pair of gym shoes. Mm. The first wow. one I brought, I got them used to go maybe in the <laughs> 80s. I thought I was going to join an exercise class. Okay, you was you was going to big tannies. Uh, well, no, I, was, I don't know, and, and but I never even wore. Them. And then I uh, found a pair. You still have those shoes? They might sell today. No, because um, 
<laughs> by me not wearing gym shoes. I think I paid two dollars for them or something. <laughs> money on gym shoes. And mm-hmm. uh, I was out in Arizona a couple, few years ago, and I saw a pair of patent leather and leopard gym shoes. And, okay, that sounds fun. And then I found uh, a pair of uh, tan and dark chocolate brown flat gym mm. shoes that just seem to be so comfortable and they go with everything. But, okay, um, okay. No, it, things, it's just vintage. You can't beat vintage. It's beautiful mm-hmm. textiles. Uh, the fabrics were well thought out. Some of the floral prints and the geometric patterns and they were designed Mm -hmm. to camouflage and to hold you in a lot of the ruchings of the dresses from the 40s and stuff and they weren't using but a minimum amount of fabric because of the war but Mm. they took that fabric Mm -hmm. and uh, they made that box dress look beautiful you know Mm. So, wow, they, they, they had because they had to stretch the fabric out to make it work. Make it work. Well, they were only allotted so I think it was four and a half yards per garment because of the. Work. Do you remember the time where they did the use the pin mark to do the create the the line and back of the for the pantyhose because when they couldn't wear the pantyhose anymore, so they women would just wear the put the little line, draw the line down their leg for like a for the stockings. That's when America was working together for the war effort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But wow, that's fascinating. But no, I'm I'm uh, planning in the next year or so to uh, to liquidate some of my stuff through auctions. Okay, now let me ask you this: Have you thought about? Doing the offering, the boxes or the like, like a pallet or like buy buy by the box. Yeah, or... I'm, I'm thinking, but I would like to sell in bulk. Okay, and, yeah, bulk basically. Is uh, people need to understand, you know, when you sell in bulk, you're you you you're discounting your stuff a lot. Don't insult mm-hmm. by just asking me to give you something for $25 that I know that you're going to make a thousand dollars off of. I think, but that, I think that's why it'll be important to be able to categorize those items. So where you can have a box that's, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure nothing you have will be, it will be equivalent to a $25 box, you know, you well, know, you just have to put it out there that this this is high end stuff. So and and it's by p is by period. So I I I would think that the the older the period, the older the item is, the higher it's, it's going to cost you. Well, uh, the thing let's just respect each other's intellect. You know, mm. I've spent a lot of years um, collecting. And I collect what my consumers, um, I'm telling you, the Manhattan Vintage 
Bennett show after doing it for 10 years it was like getting a master's degree from FIT and it wow. was through the, the history of clothing that it was through the ladies that wore vintage clothing and then you learn about certain people like maybe Bonnie Cashin who in my opinion was just ahead of her time she uh, mm. designed for she freelance design. That's basically what she did. And mm -hmm. companies and not have the overcost of manufacturing because she would charge it to the companies that she designed for. Mm. And her clothes are so classically designed that they look just as good today as they did back in the 50s and 60s when she was times have you ever seen a, a a bonnie cash and poncho you know and it, uh, that speaks for itself like if you see it you because i think a person with that eye or who knows bonnie cash and they would know you know that buckle on her coats or you know just certain details that she had right that you would instantly recognize oh my god that's a bonnie cash and right. like and it still is, is she uh saved coach back mm -hmm. in the day, back in the 70s? She, um, she did 70s, right? Yeah, for coach. Yeah, she stepped up and saved that company with her designs. And the other thing I loved about her, she worked with a lot of leather. Mm -hmm. Even she was designing for the working woman of that day. Her clothes was just so wool and leather, wool and suede. Just, it's, it has never went out of style. And like you said, you know, if you know anything about vintage clothing, you can recognize a Bonnie Cash, and you can even recognize if it's a a knockoff of Bonnie Cash. Mm. So would you say back then that, that there was knockoffs? No, I'm just saying that her clothes are so well put together. If mm -hmm. a knockoff of Bonnie Cashin and put it... Okay, it might have been by a home yeah, sewer or somebody. Okay, a home seamstress. You would automatically know which one is authentic just because of the textiles and uh her clothes the way it may drape yeah the way that it draped and and uh just exquisite stuff yeah so, so you have to tell the listeners about your experience back at the Manhattan Vintage show when about the dresses you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i uh for, for you listeners out there, I had the opportunity to purchase, and this was an education. Hold on, y'all. Get y'all pens ready so y'all can write down some of these names. For all my resellers, aspiring vintage dealers, get a pen and paper so you can write down these names. Okay. okay. Re <laughs> research is everything. Back in the day, mm -hmm. you know, how you say Louis Vuitton, Gucci, you know. Back in the day, there were beautiful in-store designers. There were corner designers. There were small manufacturers that were designers, but they were doing some serious designs. And I purchased three dresses. 
Uh, one of the dresses was from the 30s. It was by Nadia Bambovala, who was Rudolph Valentino, uh, back in the day's wife, but she was also uh, a costume designer and for a small portion of Hollywood society, she designed clothes. The second dress was by Milgram, a company that was from 40s and 50s, and maybe even lasted into the 60s. The third dress was by Galanos, who was, and all of these are American designers, uh, you need to know your inventory because, like, the money you spend on a dress, everything is relevant. Mm -hmm. I purchased the three dresses for $900. The first dress I put on a mannequin was Nadia Bambovala, which, like I said, this was an education for me. I had learned about who she was and all of this, and I was so excited because I got the dresses maybe two weeks before I was going to New York. I should have did some serious research before I put that dress on the mannequin, but nonetheless... Brenda, before we go on, though, when, like, in the the 90s, I guess there was internet or, yeah, internet in the 90s, but where did you do your research before internet before there was an internet well i i was yes i did and the way that i did it i got mm -hmm. respect for my collection and back in the day uh the the angela i can't remember her last name but she was really promoting that show mm. and uh i remember one year uh Grey Goose sponsored a fashion show mm -hmm. and we had a swing dance and a peg mm -hmm. tone if you're from New York City and you can go back a little bit she was um, had a band and they did uh, it was like a big band thing she wore vintage clothing and it was the most beautiful thing we had a big swing dance okay um, they would have book signings. They would have uh, special collections of uh, vintage pieces, like, you know, going into maybe the Metropolitan to see a uh, selection. But no, there was no internet. So uh, the promoter of the Manhattan Vintage Show did a great job of promoting it. And... Um, this was before 9-11. It always coincided with Fashion Week. Mm. So we would have the general public, but we would have all the de these designers coming in, models. Um, it was, uh, and at that time, the show was three days long. It was Friday. And matter of fact, you could come in on Thursday night. You know, you pay a premium. But you could come mm -hmm. in while we were sitting up because we were allowed to sit up Thursday night and it was officially from Friday to Sunday. 
So, and it worked out very well up until 9-11. After 9-11, um, everything changed. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had um, Sheila Feeney was uh, one of the promoters for the shows back then. And, and then uh, the promoters that are there now, they were actually dealers back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I my doing that show was an education because you have educated consumers coming in, getting back to. So they the dress. were able to educate too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second dress, one of the most famous fashion icons of vintage fashion, Lana Turner came into my booth and saw the second dress on the mannequin. She put the dress on, she promenaded through the whole show and came back into my booth. And when she came back into my booth, there was a gentleman sitting in my booth waiting with his friend who happened to be Vivian Tan. And he says, oh my God, I remember when they brought that dress into the, uh, showroom in 1952 so so many of my customers I've got educated by other dealers Uh, there was a dealer I had brought a piece in and Mm-hmm. You, you, we skipped the first dress though. Oh, the first dress, woman. Mm-hmm. We skipped that. I'm sorry, I cut you off. She, she came in and she, she. I was at the front. She says, "Well, let me look. I love the dress." She went crazy. She came back, and uh, she says, "I gotta have the dress." She says, and she gives me this black American Express card. And she's jumping up and down, and I'm jumping up. <laughs> I paid three dollars for this dress and turned around and sold it for fourteen hundred dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> you screaming? She screaming? Yeah. And then she says, "Just think, I was gonna buy this dress for sixteen thousand dollars in this." Mm. Mm-hmm. And then I really, you know, I could have sold the dress because it was a museum quality piece. I would have fainted like. Well, <laughs> it was an education in a lot of way. I had another incident where I had this beautiful fuchsia silk bolero and it was totally encrusted in rhinestones. I mean, it could have been worn on the red carpet. It could have been worn by an entertainer. It could have been worn at the Oval Office. And I paid you know, $95 for the Bolero jacket. And that's at a time when you could get a nice vintage piece for 10 bucks. And I had mm-hmm. started doing shows in New York. I had started getting, you know... Start looking at what was really real, just not names, but quality textiles and workmanship. And I paid ninety five dollars for it, so I said I'm gonna take a chance. I'm gonna add a three to that, and I sold it as I was sitting up to one of the dealers. 
Mm. By the time I was finished setting up, the dealer had put it on a, a mannequin and put a price tag of $2,100 on it. Sold it. Dealer came sourcing from you from while you setting up. Hey, that's part of the game. You need to know. But I think that's know your merch. I wrote that yeah. down. That's yeah. priority number one. Know your merchandise. And my second takeaway from you is an educated consumer is the best consumer. Right. Because you don't have to explain to that educated consumer. They see the value. They see the quality. And because they, they see the quality, they know the value. Opposed to someone who come in and they see they just look at a label and they say, well, why is this price? Why is this Gucci this much? Or why is this, this little, this little cotton dress? Why is that $200? Because they, because they're not educated. They don't know. They don't know. They don't. And I think what's also another important thing is if the, if the consumer isn't educated as a, as a vendor or as a dealer, you should be able to educate them. Which is something that I do. I usually get involved with uh, conversations with people that come into my booth and uh, they want to know about the textile because vintage fabric is so different and beautiful from what they're doing today. And usually we end up talking for a while and usually they come back at a later time and they will purchase something from me. But my best customer is an educated consumer. This is the Midwest, so they're not as into vintage as, say, someone from even Chicago or L.A. or New York. And mm. uh, when I first got here, it was a little hard, and then I went out, and you're from this area, so I went out to West Bloomfield, and that market supported me. Okay, um, okay. To the city, you know, how are you going to charge $100 for something that's old, you know? Mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. changing. But you know what, though? I think that... You know, like when I go back and like the history books, like as far as like black history and and try to like study style, I think Detroit low key. Like if I would love to tap into like some of those older women's closets, because I'm sure there are some gems to be had. And especially by homemade or hand um, seamstresses, people who just sold back in the day. I'm sure there are some gems to be had in the city of Detroit. Well, and my sister is a nurse practitioner and she goes into these homes and I'm all the time like, girl, what she have on? She's kind of, you know, like, like you think she got some clothes I can get? <laughs> you know, I'm always trying to, you know, get her to, you know, let her, talk her patients into, you know, letting me get some of those clothes, get in that closet. <laughs> I've, eat, I've also even thought about, you know, maybe starting a service like for cleaning out. But you know, you know what, older uh, people even working person here, uh, and that's what I say about good clothes from the 
a school teacher or a librarian or mm-hmm. got some nice they got some good dress skirts they wore body cashes they wore secretary blouses Kimberly mm-hmm. knits they wore beautiful clothing uh body cashing was a working woman's line but it, it was just gorgeous you know so yeah there's beautiful stuff to be had everywhere even in that little rural corner you had some woman that was mm. and had something fabulous in her closet for some kind of special event i mean that was a part of your socialization is getting dressed up even for a kid back in the day the mm-hmm. party they had on a birthday dress they had on a sunday sunday best you know sunday best. you had mm-hmm. on your sunday best so no they're beautiful but it's just i guess you know where in new york for instance i had a coat here i found it just before i went to a show i charged uh, someone wanted it I told them $125. They were insulted that I had the audacity to ask them $125. For- I wish you could see my face because I'm like, um, especially if it was like a wool coat, I ain't selling nobody wool coat for $125. I'm sorry because if you want a wool coat, a wool coat today, you can go to Fashion Nova and get you a $40 wool coat. Uh, $40 acrylic coat with 10% wool, well, but if you want a wool coat? Wool coat. It was white meat. Oh, 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 oh. On the style of the Chesterfield. And uh, mm. I said, okay. I just happened to be going to New York. Back to that story that I sh- uh, told you earlier. Vivian Tam was in my booth. She purchased the coat for $900 and used it in one of her fashion shows as an accessory. Wow. So, like I said, an educated consumer um, is my best bet. They're not going to be afraid that they spend $100 on a dress that they could go to TJ Maxx or Marshalls and get something half the quality for the same price. But exactly. What, this dress has been around for 50 or 60 years. And as long as you take care of this garment, it's going to... And you said a Chesterfield coat. Like, so the Chesterfield, that, that silhouette in itself, in my head, is value. It's, it's because for, So before we even get to the fabric and the textile, we just can talk about that silhouette. And why that's of some value in today's market. You're not finding a coat like that no, today. No, no. And if you're not gonna find a coat I like that today. A, I'm thinking, I, no, I you're not finding a coat like coat that today. Is. You know, I look at that and it's cashmere. And to me, mm. it's not as well made as some of my vintage coats. Mm. But actually, well, no, we have been talking over an hour and a half. No, six. We have been talking for over an hour and a half. <laughs> yes, we, we have. Talk all day long, but I hope we continue this conversation on a. Cons- yes, we can do it. We can do a part two, three, four, and yeah, five. Always <laughs> something to talk about. 
uh, let me give you my, you know, if anybody wants to ask me anything, you can visit me on Etsy. Or my email address is vintagefabulousvelocity at AOL.com. My daughter teases me. She said, Ma, nobody uses AOL anymore. You know, but, I, I personally assist for a lady, and she I, still has an AOL, and I tease her, too. I say, so you and her must be the last two Mohicans with a, um, AOL.com. Well, that's an email address that was it haven't changed it and it works <laughs> it works it's so again for the listeners that's vintage fabulosity at aol.com and that's one word and her your instagram is also at vintage fabulosity and the name of her etsy shop is vintage fabulosity and, and if you're in detroit Definitely want to go down and check her out and meet her in person. You want to you want to shake this woman's hands, learn what you can learn from her. And that's at the Vintage Eastern Market at 1515 Division Street. Yes, in the Eastern Market. And for those of you that are listening and you're in the Detroit area, only if you're serious. I would like to share. Passionate, serious. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. My education with you and expose you to a collection that spans over a hundred years. It's not just vintage; it's antique, you know. So, wow. but uh, as usual, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yes, and we'll we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for this interview. I can't wait to come back home. I'm coming home just. Just to see you, like I don't want to see family. I I just I'm just coming, and I'm coming to see Brenda. We just coming to see coming to see Brenda. Vintage fabulosity. I thank you, I thank you, and I love you very much. You too. I love you too. I'll talk to All you right. soon. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of the Thrift and Chick Vintage Podcast. And today we're chatting with Vintage Fabulosity. <laughs>